Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We've told you about George Floyd. We've told you about far too many uh, police killings of African-American men, unarmed uh, black men all across the country dozens of times. Uh, but it's not just the killings, it's also the abuse that happens throughout the country. And we've got another case that we want to talk to you about today. Uh, uh, to help us do that, we brought on Sean Shaw. He was Democratic nominee for Florida Attorney General back in 2018, actually a historic nominee. First time ever that there was a black nominee for that post uh, from the Democratic Party. Uh, his family's uh, uh, got broken a lot of um, uh, traditions and, and, and led the way in Florida. Uh, and that, that could get relevant in this story. And he's also with the peopleoverprofits.org. Um, Sean, uh, there's a story of Ronald Davenport uh, in in Florida and how he was abused by the police, and I know you got involved in that. So, uh, do you want to set that up, us set that up for us? Uh, who was Davenport and what happened to him? Sure, uh, you know it was a rally that I went to recently in Sarasota, Florida, and so I'm in Tampa, so it was not far for me to go. But they asked me to come down there. Um, because they wanted to lift up his story and I was happy to do so. Um, Mr. Davenport was not just the victim of police brutality once, he has been the victim of police brutality twice. And from what I understand, the first time he was a victim um, was some years ago uh, and he eventually settled with the police department on that occasion. And then the second occasion, which was more recent, um, he had an incident interaction with the police uh, got injured, got beat up, went to the hospital, uh, ended up in jail and then got out. If you read the police report, which I read very quickly, uh, it reads you know, pretty unbelievably, right? Uh, Mr. Davenport was uh, immediately got, after he was stopped, immediately start cursing at officers, immediately got aggressive. And so the cops had no choice but to make sure that they could get him under control. And you know, I, I happened to be at the rally with the public defender who had showed up at the rally and he had the police report. And when we read it, we just shook our heads because it was almost, it was just kind of what you would expect from a report of what we know is, what we know his injuries resulted from. From the report, you couldn't have, you didn't know that he ended up in the hospital. From the report, you couldn't tell that he was injured at all. And so that's why the report was so unbelievable. And I was talking to Mr. Davenport before the rally. And what was so disturbing about his incident and how it relates to what's going on, George Floyd resonates with us because we saw the eight minutes and 46 seconds of the knee on his neck. Eric Garner resonates with us because of the video, Armand Arbery, Trayvon Martin. These resonate because we've got video. 
What about all the incidents throughout the dozens and decades of where there's no video or where it's just an officer's word against an unarmed African American man and you know who's gonna get the benefit of the doubt in that situation. And so while I'm glad the country after seeing the George Floyd eight minutes and 46 seven seems to be somewhat galvanized. We can't forget that this has been going on a long time and not a lot of people have the video evidence. We gotta remember that that's what we are marching for and protesting for. It's all that wretched history that this country has on this issue and we gotta do something about it. Yeah, it's for the audience, I need you to understand, Davenport's 63 years old. Uh, and so his family says he was dragged out of the car. Uh, what we do know for sure is he's got fractured ribs, lung damage, lumbar strain, pop blood vessels in his eyes and abrasions throughout his body. Uh, and apparently after they already had him down, they also kicked him several times. And the report so, reads like uh, an African American man who immediately got aggressive with the police. They had to restrain him lightly. Uh, and then got him into custody. If you read the report versus the injuries that you just described, somebody is not telling the truth. And I'm gonna believe a medical report before I believe that police report. Yeah, well, that's gonna go to a core issue here in a sec. But uh, one, one more important fact in the case that I want people to know. To be fair to the police, Ronald Davenport was in the middle of a very serious violation when they pulled him over. Uh, wrong use of a left turn signal. Wow, I didn't know it was that serious. Um, so they, and if you're wondering at home, why did they even bother to put that in the report? Because they then have to say resisting arrest. Right. But what was he resisting arrest for? Uh, the left turn signal thing. Sure, sure. Were you going to arrest him for wrong use of a left turn signal? You know, you could arrest three quarters of the country for that. Well, <laughs> it's what we can't lose sight of. What's important. White people don't get arrested for wrong use of left turns, okay? Yes. White people don't get arrested for having a $20 counterfeit bill. Like we gotta understand these underlying kind of implicit bias and, and prejudice that lead to these confrontations. You're not arresting a white person for being in their car and for using the wrong left turn signal. It doesn't happen, you use it when you think a black person is suspicious and you only think that because you've got the implicit bias that all black people are criminals. Yeah. I think that's right. You look, you're the state's insurance consumer advocate. You're elected to the state legislature. You ran for attorney general. So I don't know if there's a controversial question that I got for you. But look, it, it, when we were kids, we were taught, oh, the police uh, are always telling the truth and you have to respect them, etc. cetera. Uh, now, having seen overwhelming evidence um, to the contrary, unless they can prove otherwise, I believe. Especially in a situation where the cops are in trouble, I assume they are lying. Um, every time that that we've covered a story of cops being questioned about something, they've lied every single time, and they all lie in unison. Uh, that's what the thin blue line is about. Where it's not about a few bad apples. No, if there's a bad apple, thin blue line means we all fall in line and back the bad apples because they're not. The whole culture is wrong. So. You know, they would have to present overwhelming video evidence for me to believe that the 63 year old had the broken lungs coming to him. Otherwise, I think just like I've seen a thousand times over, the cops are lying.
No, in this case, I think you're exactly right. That's it's clear that someone's lying, either the the medical report or the police report, and it's pretty obvious which one's lying. I think the broader question is certainly the veneer that and the default kind of respect and privilege that we've given to police over the years is something that is eroding before our very eyes, probably rightfully so, and. It's eroding not only because of what we're seeing, it's eroding because there's no transparency in the process. You don't know who these cops are that have excessive complaints. You don't know what the disciplinary thing is. You don't have any idea about the transparency. Oftentimes police that have had dozens of complaints can be on the street and you don't know it. And they've gone through the appellate process and only got a slap on the wrist. That is why we need transparency in a federal database of all these things. But the veneer and the days of just automatically police getting that that belief, I think, is eroding rightfully so before our eyes because of what we are seeing. And you know, I, I as all black men, I said this at the rally, this is a burden that we bear in this country that's unique to us. All of us had the talk with our parents, uncles, older, whoever it is. I had the talk. The only difference is when my father had the talk with me, he had a three-piece suit on and he was the chief justice of the Florida Supreme Court. And he had to talk with me about how to act when police pulled you over, where to put your hands, what to say, where to look. And so it doesn't matter who your parents are, it doesn't matter your socioeconomic status, it doesn't matter what you do, where you're from. It matters that you're a young black male or a black male period. And all of us understand that it is, you get that pit in the, that knot in the pit of your stomach whenever you have any kind of interaction with police. And that's just something that all black men, it's just the way we have been brought up. Uh, and the way that life has gone, and that's really what the focus is, and what we need to what we need to get at, and everything else is is a distraction. Yeah. So when uh, the black chief justice of the Supreme Court has to tell his son how not to get murdered by the cops, we got a problem in America. That, and, and that's a story that you know my white friends don't believe, and and they find that hard to believe. And my black friends are like, yeah, what are you talking about? Every dad has that story. It's just how life is. You can't be getting pulled over and reaching for the glove box without saying you're doing it, unless you want to be putting your life in danger. If you're a black male, it's just it's the way of life. Yeah, and in the case of Philando Castile, he was very clear, and he said it, and they shot him anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Well, Sean, then let's talk about whether there's a sea change here with what happened with George Floyd and the reaction there after. And it's, I know it's too early to tell, but, but for as long as America has been alive, been around, African American men and women have been saying we're being abused by the police, right? You get past slavery. Everybody knows there's no question about it in the South during the Jim Crow era, but the reality is it was all over the country, including the North. And then even past civil rights, almost every black male has a story. But yet the country in unison said, no, we believe millions of you are all lying, all with the same story. We just don't believe you, we believe the police instead, because that's what we've been, I honestly think they were brainwashed to believe that. I think we were all brainwashed to believe that. But now it appears that, you know, that even a big portion of white America is saying, Maybe they weren't lying. <laughs> I've seen too many videos now where I can see it with my own eyes. So are you a little bit hopeful about that at this point, Sean? A little bit, not a lot, but a little bit. And I'll tell you why, the civil rights movement of the 60s was really dependent on the American public changing their mind. 
And a lot of that mind changing happened as a result of videos and photographic evidence of dogs and water hoses. And a lot of America didn't understand how protesters and black Americans are being treated. Hopefully this George Floyd video is that sort of galvanizing thing and America can't help but see eight minutes, 46 seconds of that officer's knee on that brother's neck. You can't help but see that. You can't help but understand that there was a problem there. Yeah. Look, it's hard to be hopeful, but but you know I think that the police in unison might have lost the country when George Floyd said "Mama," and and they didn't. That get was off. the one that gave me chills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Sean Shaw. Everybody, check out the PeopleOverProfits.org as well. And Sean, hopefully, we'll be seeing a lot more of you here on the outreach. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, back on the conversation on the TYT network. Now, we do a lot of thought provoking conversations, but this one is even more so, if you will. Okay, should America be considered a racist pariah state and maybe even boycotted? So, Ellie Mastal joins us. He's a justice correspondent at The Nation. So, we talked about last time. I love. Uh, the title Justice Correspondent, and <laughs> and and I love uh, your thought-provoking piece here in the nation. So the the title of it is the U.S. needs to be treated like the racist prior state that it is. So Ellie, uh, let me let you take it away with your case for why that is. Well, it's not so much a case for for like I don't it, the the point here is not the case for why America is racist. I don't think that I have to really explain anymore um, why America is racist and and the history of of oppression um, that African Americans especially, um, but you know darker people in general um, have faced in this country. The interesting thing to me and the reason why I wrote the piece is that the uh, George Floyd protests represent the first time in my lifetime. Um, where uh, it seems like the international community um, is starting to notice the kind of oppression and brutality um, that black Americans have complained about for for some time. You've seen uh, Black Lives Matter inspired protests around the globe in every European country, I think, um, Australia, Brazil, South Africa, um, of course. So it's real gone, it's really gone global. Um, many of these people are also protesting kind of structural injustices and oppression in their own countries and communities. Um, but they're also uh, claiming solidarity with the American struggle. And that that is really different. That has not happened um, in my life. If if that's where we are, if the global community is willing to to join us in this struggle, um, I think that um, we could see we could see real kind of international solidarity um, around this moment, um, trying to push back against the American version of white supremacy and the American version um, of racial oppression. Yeah, so there's a couple of really interesting avenues here. Um, so of course you're right that America be considered racist is not new. <laughs> um, but uh, but whether we should be boycotted based on that is new. And and I have not seen that in a lot of other places. And you credit Reverend Mark Thompson for, for coming up with the idea. Um, but um, so, so well, let me start it with it this way. Um, what do you think the ramifications of that are, and and do you expect that they'd be um, 
that the idea will get taken seriously or will the establishment who is generally in favor of the status quo push back and go, no, that's a bridge too far. I mean, I just saw a bunch of teenagers who generally like K-pop um, just destroy a Donald Trump rally, right? Just like that, right? So you can't tell me that uh, where we are right now in the world, um, given social media, given the speed of communication, you can't tell me that Gen Z um, can't get down here um, and put some real economic pressure on some of these American com- uh, companies. Look, I think it's. The one of the big differences between where the United States is now and where South Africa was, where white South Africa was, say in 1985, um, is that USA is the biggest economy in the world. Um, You can't divest from America in the way that the international community could divest from South Africa, I don't think. I mean, like, I'm no economist. I'm pretty sure that Credit Suisse isn't leaving the New York Stock Exchange anytime soon. So, like, those kinds of issues, I think. Um, are, are too much to hope for and too much to ask for. But a global movement focused on the racism and oppression, oppression in this country that puts pressure on American corporations to stand against and stand opposed um, to the kind of police brutality that we've seen, that, that could do something. And in fairness, we have already seen American corporations react to these protests differently than at any time before, right? NASCAR has had a Confederate flag problem for the entirety of NASCAR, but now they're changing it, right? Black people have been complaining about the racial stereotypes of Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben for seven years. But now those people are off the boxes, right? And that's all that's all American corporations not caring about black or white, but caring about green. And what and if you have an international movement caring about green, that can hurt Apple. That can hurt Disney, and once the corporations are really feeling it, you might see a whole different kind of movement around getting a handle on our problem of police brutality and bias. Yeah, um, so like I said, there's so many avenues here. So uh, first off, um, let me note as I did on Monday's Young Turk show that uh, it should be deeply embarrassing that the Democratic Party, that a bunch of underage Korean music fans have done more to damage Donald Trump than the entire Democratic Party. Um, so, but it really does go to your point, Ellie, that uh, this movement is so international and sometimes so lightning quick. Um, and, and so you never know the, the effect that it could have. But the first thing that you're gonna run against is people are gonna say, well, what are you hitting Apple and Disney for? Uh, they didn't do it, and they've actually been pretty good on a lot of the racial diversity issues. And so, is that an ironic uh, thing? And 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 will it hurt the economy here in America? And then hence hurt uh, Black folks too. So I'm positive. I'm asking you these questions in a legitimate intellectual way. Uh, the mainstream media will blare them uh, out. In a way that I, I think will be overwhelming. Uh, but what's your take on that? Well, of course, it would hurt African Americans too. Of course, if the goal is to put economic pressure on the United States, black people live here too. That's putting economic pressure on black people as well. But again, these are the same arguments that white South Africa made in the 80s. 
Like these, these are not new. Um, and, and certainly black South Africans will tell you um, that as the community, as the international community started the real push towards moral suasion um, to, to sanction the white South African regime, that their first response was to carry out kind of more brutalization and more torture and more punishment on um, the black citizens of South Africa. So obviously there's, there's always a boomerang effect when you try to pull to, to mess with the levers of economic um, sanction and again, kind of moral shame. You know, like one of the one of the real moments again in my upbringing, um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm in my early 40s, so I don't have a I don't have an adult's appreciation um, for the entire apartheid struggle. I have a child's appreciation for it. I have a formative years appreciation for it. Um, but one of the big formative moments I think in that in that struggle was when South Africa was kicked out of the Olympics. Right when when you when you when people understood that you couldn't even invite them into the international community. Can you imagine what white America would how they would freak out? If we were kicked out of the Olympics, and you know, again, the Olympics, a lot of our sports heroes are on the leading edge of our more tolerant kind of citizens, right? Um, not only is our, our, our international sporting teams incredibly diverse, kind of diverse on the world stage, but you know, there's, there, there, you know, I stand for you for U.S. women's soccer, right? Uh, um, um, the, we 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 are we are respected around the world for our sporting um, prowess, and yet. If those teams are disinvited from international tournaments, if we're kicked out of the Olympics, if we're kicked out until there's actual change and there's an actual lessening of oppression in this country, that would make a statement. It would be collective harm to be sure, but for a very specific, I think, collective gain in terms of arguing against trying to fight the white supremacy that we have here in this country. Yeah, and let's not forget that the bus boycotts also made it very difficult for black folks down in the south. And it caused them great economic pain, let alone having to walk to work and physical pain that came along with it. But at the end of the day, it worked. And that's part of why the right wing in Israel is so scared of the BDS movement, because economic pressure works. And so my mom was born in 1950 in Mississippi. She walked a lot. She had, you know, that that old joke like I used to have to walk uphill both ways. But my mom, my mom can tell that story. She's not, she's not making a joke when she tells that story. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so, so these boycotts are not devoid of pain, but that's part of the point, which is to get cause enough economic pain so that people change. And usually, that's the only thing that leads to change. And so it's a bold and really interesting idea. And then, but I did want to ask one more thing about that, Ellie. So. You know, a lot of the rest of the world, I'm not sure they have a leg to stand on either. Um, so, you know, in China uh, during the virus, uh, coronavirus, um, they started discriminating against black people and throwing them out of their house as if they caused it. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Look, we fight against Donald Trump when he calls the Chinese virus, etc. But certainly black people in China didn't cause it. That's insane, right? Yeah. And then, you know, and I, I can give you a thousand examples. You also have, unfortunately, in Israel, uh, so everybody that says they're Jewish is Jewish and is a citizen, maybe except the black Jews. And and we can go and give a list of hundreds of examples, thousands perhaps. So do they get to do a boycott of our racism? 
Yeah, so very quickly, I would just say that any kind of boycott on this level would not be top down. It would not be from the government down. It would be from the people up. I don't want to hear Britain talking about racism until they give back some jewels to India, right? Like there, there, there are a lot of European countries that have, you know, uh, uh, that, that do not have clean hands on uh, on this issue. But if it comes up from the people, and that's what we're seeing with the George Floyd protests, if it comes up from the people, um, that that's a whole different kind. It's a whole different kind of movement. That's a whole different kind of of potential for solidarity. All right, Ellie Mistel, justice correspondent at The Nation, finding a new avenue for justice. We appreciate it, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jack.